Welcome to the Productivity Podcast. Delighted today to be joined by Michael LeBlanc, who is a founder and president of his own company, Emmy LeBlanc and Company Inc. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm fantastic, Simon. Thanks for having me on board. Good. We were just talking off air. We, we've got torrential rain. You're based in Canada. You've got snow. We're not quite sure where the world is going or what it's coming to, but let's have an upbeat and positive chat about all things retail. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. Good. So before we talk about kind of Retail Canada versus Retail UK, can you just give us a bit of a career bio about yourself, where you've been, where you've worked, how you got to do what you do today? Yeah, well, thanks again for having me on. Uh, I'm really a veteran retailer. I spent 25 years in the retail space, uh, e-commerce pioneer. I launched my first e-commerce site with Levi's. I actually sold the first pair of Levi's jeans online in the late 90s. So I'm a bit of an OG from an e-commerce perspective, and I've worked for brands like Black & Decker and Levi's and Pandora Jewelry. And uh, I work for the Shopping Channel, which is like a QVC. Your, your listeners might know the QVC Interactive 24-Hour Retail. That was just, just a blast. And then from there, I did some uh, CMO work with some private equity and then went to an organization called uh, the Retail Council of Canada, which is an advocacy group, lobbying group that represents all retail and uh, spent a bunch of years there and then uh, on my own now. So kind of a, there's a quick whirlwind and uh, on my own i do a mix of um, consulting advisory work and i have a media company and i do a bunch of podcasts and i have my own uh, just new i have my own youtube barbecue channel for any of your listeners who are uh, into barbecuing so yeah lots of fun stuff and uh you know just basically eat my own cooking so to speak around uh, a number of different things I've a lot of time on retail whether it's in the food side the restaurant side or or the retail industry Awesome. Yeah. Barbecuing, probably not today for both of us, but maybe in the UK in a couple of, in a couple of, say a couple of weeks, probably a couple of months and probably for two days of the year. But definitely uh, we'll, we'll put some links in so people can find those shows and podcasts if they want to. So I think there's a real parallel in some respects in retail in between the UK and mm-hmm. Canada and then some really big differences. So just Give us kind of what's in your head at the moment about the landscape of retail in Canada coming out of a two-year pandemic. What does it look mm-hmm. like? What things are you starting to see come through? Are there any kind of anomalies that you, you yeah. guys have got hold of that we haven't seen yet? Yeah, well, you're right is that uh, there's far more that is similar than different, both from uh, Europe and from the UK and from the US. We often look to the, our friends in the US because we're so close to that market and we have a lot of US and international brands here in Canada. So, you know, for most things, the big trends, they're very similar. Now, in some regards, we're different, of course. So, for example, in e-commerce, we, you know, Canada as a nation really was probably five years behind the US, uh, similarly to the UK in terms of uh, the percentage of e-commerce uh, as an overall percentage of core retail sales. But thanks to the COVID era, we did the great acceleration as in many things, but uh, Canada ranked actually one or two in terms of the greatest percentage gain from uh, growth in e-commerce. So we went from, we we gained over 70%, 70 in 2020. So just a huge leap for, probably put us ahead five years. And there's a number of reasons why we, we trailed in e-commerce. Uh, you know, it is a vast what you need to understand, what your listeners need to understand about Canada, we are a vast land, sparsely populated, right? We're second biggest landmass in the world, uh, but as a nation, but uh, there's only 38 million people. So most of our population lives on a fairly thin ribbon along the border with our friends in the U.S. Probably something like 85% of Canadians can get to 
the U.S. border within uh, 90 minutes, right, to give you an example. So, but that being said, in the province I'm in, Ontario, you know, to, uh, to get to the other end of the province is basically like driving to the other end of the continent, like getting up to Scotland from London. I mean, it is 14 hours to drive to the top of just one single province. So it's a vast land. We'd be, we'd be back in London as well by then, I think. So yeah, it'd be well, five hours up, five hours back, or six maybe, and we'd, we'd be back. So yeah, two trips. Right. I mean, I mean, five hours, I can't even get halfway across the province. So what that tells us is from an e-commerce perspective, it is you don't have a lot of density, you don't have a lot of trip efficiency, and you have a vast amount of the nation. So there's I've called it a diseconomy of scale. That's probably the most interesting or the most defining characteristic of what makes um, what makes Canada different uh, from the UK is just that the geography, and that has so many implications on on uh, you know unit economics and and shipping, and that's one of the reasons why we were dragging a bit in terms of uh, e-commerce because it was just very difficult to make money at it. Frankly. And that that growth clearly, as you say, driven by the pandemic, which is yeah. understandable, is that going to stick? Because that that must mm-hmm. drive lots of cost into those retailers, so they must be. Yeah trying to deal with some really tricky challenges as you say of the logistics of it of the transport cost of it the, re- the reverse logistics yeah. of it so yeah. that is are they working through that have some come out the other side of it well a little bit of both i mean basically though the consumers love it and uh, what we've seen is the um, year-over-year growth has dropped in 2021 down to about 15 percent one five but that's more growth than in the overall channel. So there's clearly still channel shift happening. Clearly the customers love it. And retailers are trying to figure it out, right? Whether that's curbside or pickup in the stores. So we just have to be uh, very judicious about how we grow and just grow profitably, right? So it is an extra kind of, you know, you, you don't have a lot of chances to make mistakes twice here, basically. You, you've got to measure twice and, and cut once, as the carpenters would say. But my thinking is, and looking at the market is that the water line increased significantly, but it has not receded. So uh, let's say in 2019, we would, we Retail Council of Canada would estimate, and it's very hard to come across actual numbers in Canada, yeah. which is a little frustrating, but we would estimate about 8 to 10% of core retail was done online in 2019. And we would estimate that that would be closer to 15% today. And probably another area, if you zoom in and, and, focus that lens a bit is in grocery. So I know the UK, I, I, I want to say pre-pandemic was like, what, 8, 10% of grocery done online? What is it in the UK now, would you say? Uh, I'd say we're pushing probably 35, 40%. Wow. Yeah, yeah. We're nowhere near like that. I mean, we're like, we were one and a half percent pre-COVID and we're probably five to 6%, depending on how you measure it. Like if you measure, you know, an in-store curbside pickup as an online order. And so that's, Again, the, the diseconomy of scale and a vast land. So there's a, a defining difference. Now, Canadians love it and um, they they like it. But at the same time, they like their print flyers and they like to go to stores. So that's some interesting kind of back, uh, you know, some interesting context. The other thing that I wanted to call out, and this is very different, uh, and we saw tremendous growth during the COVID era, is retail cannabis. So cannabis Retail cannabis uh, is legal in Canada from coast to coast nationally, which makes us different, by the way, from the U.S., where it is legal in many states, but it's not legal nationally. That has implications on things like banking and all kinds of travel and all kinds of things. So retail cannabis was, it kind of went from illicit to essential within, you know, 18 months, basically. It was declared an essential product. Uh, so the stores were 
uh, open during even many of the store lockdowns, like uh, our liquor or alcohol stores. And, yep. you know, we saw such innovation. It's just such an interesting category. You know, it's a niche category, right? It's not a huge category by any means, but so much innovation is happening in the retail cannabis space. And they went as an industry or as a group, they went from a few selected stores to thousands all during the COVID year. So it's just exploded and is really pulled out from the the dark side from, uh, you know, they call it the legacy business, but really the illicit market has pulled all that volume. And that's about $6 billion worth of sales in Canada, we would estimate, into, you know, tax paying, jobs creating, rent paying. So it's really been an interesting thing to watch and, and we continue to watch it. So those are a couple of really interesting things that help set some context perhaps for your listeners. And that that growth, is that one chain that's grown or is it, is it a number of chains competing for that market? How has that played out? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, really, there's some governmental regulations around how many stores you can actually have. So there's some artificial, so to speak, constraints on growth, but there has been consolidation in the market, but it is really most, mostly indies. Uh, anybody could get a license. You had to pass a whole bunch of things like, a, you know, you had to not have been selling it before and you got to pass a whole bunch of licensing things. But really, when you look at the thousands of stores, it's made up of four or five groups that are mixes of franchisees and corporate owned. And But the biggest in the market owns 100, 125 stores. So it is really, really uh, many, many indies, independent retailers who set up. And, uh, you know, there's some, you know, there's some clusters, which is interesting. So you've got some streets where there's, Literally, you walk two blocks and you pass 10 different retail cannabis stores. They're not all going to survive. And it kind of gets around to our discussion about what makes you different in retail, because now they're fighting like retailers. Why would I walk by your store who sells basically the same thing as the next store to get to your store? Right. So they're really it's a really interesting thing to watch. Yeah, and it, it's interesting that it's kind of come you said from the dark side, but there's yeah. there's not many times in our lives where we see a new yeah. channel open up before our eyes mm-hmm. clearly grow that quickly in a, in yeah. difficult circumstances as well. Yeah. So once it, in a gener- it's really once in a generation, right? I mean, you, it, it, it suddenly in the official numbers of the country's GDP went from zero to four and a half billion, like all right. night, like in 18 months. And it's a bit alien over here because in the UK, it's, I don't know the exact, the exact laws, but we don't have cannabis shops. There's kind of... It's getting closer, I think, and people mm-hmm. are a lot more relaxed about it, but it's still in more in the dark side than the light side, let's say. Well, I can tell you the experience here in Canada, um, it, you know, was that there was no social tearing of the fabric. The fabric was not torn. There was no sudden increase in, uh, you know, driving accidents. There was no, it, it, it was all positive, basically. It's all been positive. Uh, so, you know, for any of your listeners that happen to be in the regulatory space or thinking about it. There's been no downside. And again, we're not creating an industry. We're just moving it, right? It's not like we suddenly, a number of Canadians started smoking cannabis, like some did because they had stopped. Maybe they smoked in their youth. Maybe they like it for its uh, its benefits. But they kind of said, you know, I don't want to really want to deal with a dealer, buy illegal weed. I don't know what I'm buying, for example. Uh, you know, we're also concerned about what's going in our, our bodies. But um, mostly, by and large, the majority was already being consumed. Now it's just being consumed legally and you have what we call seed to sale. So, you know, it's not soaked in pesticide and you know everything about the product. Whereas before, you know, you you had really no idea. Yeah. Protects the consumer and clearly puts money back into the the economy, which can only be a good thing. Pays for our healthcare, right? Taxes that pay for our healthcare and roads and all those great things. And 
you know, there's a lot of people who are working in uh, illicit clinics that now have a legitimate job and a T4 slip and, and uh, can start a career in retail. And it, it's interesting because it does does lead to that point that you just mentioned about what, what makes you different as a retailer. Mm-hmm. I, I assume at some point in that market, there'll be some consolidation because somebody yeah. will want a bigger slice of the yeah. the, the pie. Um, and that happens in terms of when you get all these independents and they'll be spread across the geography. Someone, someone will consolidate. Um, but in terms of that innovation piece, which is, again, been talked about in retail for years, theatre innovation, customer first. Are you seeing much of that in Canada in terms of people really looking to differentiate, differentiate through service, uh, offering in-store mm-hmm. experience? Yeah, I mean, really, it's an interesting case study because uh, they basically – as cannabis retailers, not to dwell on that too long, they basically all sell the same product and many of the same brands. So they really have to be, how do they present it? And they make decisions and many, as many retailers need to and are between basically this, I think of retail in this four, four kind of point matrix. Whereas on one end is on one, let's say the horizontal plane, you've got either you're very efficient or you are more experiential. And then on the other plane, let's say vertical, you're more value-oriented or you're more luxury-oriented. And that is the way it's playing out in that and many other industries. And those who are kind of in the middle, they're just being, in general, less successful because they, people are, you know, they, they, you know, you're good at something. Good isn't good enough anymore. You've got to be remarkable. And, and you know, better isn't good enough anymore. And when we're saying over here, kind of the, I suppose, the squeeze of the generalists, so department mm-hmm. stores over here have really, really taken a hit. So John Lewis, House of Fraser, Debenhams, unfortunately, no longer. So they, yeah. those people almost sold everybody else's brand, probably needed big volume because mm-hmm. they were on, working on small margins, just don't don't seem to work for us in the UK anymore. We We like specialists, we like choice. We maybe don't want it all under the same roof, although there's a couple of brands – becoming pseudo department stores mm-hmm. by stealth, maybe not by choice. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that shift as well? Yes and no. I mean, you know, the, the department store as a channel has been declining for the past 20 years, and I don't see anything that's going to turn that around in a meaningful way. Now, we've got some great operators on this side of the pond, so to speak. You've got, uh, you know, Hudson's Bay, which is a U.S. owned. Of course, you think of it as Canadian, but it's really U.S. owned now. Uh, and they pulled together a, a good assortment, and uh, you know it's a big part of the real estate strategy. You've got Simon's, which is a Quebec-based uh, department store. They've got a very specific uh, perspective on the product they sell. They're very popular, and, and of course, you've got the big hitters: your 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 Neiman Marcus's, your Nordstrom, which is uh, you know a fantastic store. But really, they need to all and and are all before they face an extinction level event need to reconceptualize what their stores do where they are. So for example, Nordstrom is opening up Nordstrom local stores, which are very small footprint stores, but they don't they don't try to do a Nordstrom light. Like they don't try to say, well let's let's just pick some assortment because that's not proven to be wildly successful. Macy's tried that and with yeah. middling success. But what it is is a place to drop off your returns, pick up some product, maybe get your you know your your products tailored. And you know, they open in New York City, for example, there's none here in Canada yet. They've opened eight or 10 in Manhattan and they've got their huge, massive flagship, which, you know, listen, by the time you get to the top, you know, it's six floors, I think, um, a men's and a women's, like they literally have two department stores across the street from each other. 
Um, you know, by the time you get to the upper floors, let's just say it's a good place to be alone with your thoughts some days. I mean, there's just not, there's not a lot of people there, but they're innovating, whether it's online or format innovation. And uh, that's how they're going to survive. The overall concept department stores, listen, it's been declining for 20 years. I don't see anything that's going to turn that decline around. However, there can be tremendous innovation. It's just not going to look the same. And that not looking the same, some things we're seeing over here are um, more restaurants or fast mm-hmm. service food collaborations, nail bars, hairdressers, yep. um, tattoo parlors, all those kind of mm-hmm. experiential things or more leisure activities colliding with fashion houses, collaborations. So over here, Primark, you may have heard of them. They're yeah, kind of right. one of the discounters. They've just done a collaboration with Greg's, who are a fast food pasty sandwich um, outlet. Mm-hmm. So there's a Greg's gone into one of the stores, but then that's led to Primark doing a clothing range with Greg's branding on mm trainers top so the the weird and the wonderful we've got some fashion houses yeah. with car showrooms in it it's um it's difficult to guess because people are really trying to push the boundaries and find those points where the cost the end customer might be the same but the yeah. products might be poles apart yeah i think i think bold, fortune is going to truly favor the bold i'm not sure you know uh, my partner steve Dennis and I were kidding Macy's on our podcast. They put out a big press release that this company Wexels Pretzels were opening up a location in a hundred Macy's. And we're like, oh, that's going to turn the business around. <laughs> like, listen, you know, it's, it's de minimis, so to speak. It's not going to change anything. It's not that thing in and of itself. You can't do a hundred of those things to change the course of that business. You need to think differently. Now, that being said, you know, we look at, um, Beauty like Sephora and Ulta brands going in shop and shops into stores like, as you said, Mass Merchant with like a, a a Target that is that is doing very well, like huge growth for them and, and the Kroger's department side of the business. So innovation can absolutely happen, but it needs to be meaningful. And as you know, getting back to what you said, you know, you need to pick a spot on that matrix, right? If you're in the center, if you're in the middle of the road, so to speak, you know, we call that the boring middle. And and you know, the chances are you're gonna you're gonna be in trouble basically you're gonna you're gonna get one over you're gonna hit the crash barrier if in the middle yeah. of the road aren't you yeah. yeah regardless of which side you drive um, yeah yeah <laughs> that's right so confusing when i go over there but uh, it is fun in the roundabouts let me tell you that yep yeah i think francis is a little bit worse and a little, a little bit uh, trickier but we, we do a, we do a good job on roundabouts i think I, I love round listen i love round okay there's another difference we don't have enough roundabouts i love roundabouts no, it's the same in America, isn't it? You don't see a roundabout in America. They're all junctions. And then being able to turn on a red light is just so confusing. I still struggle with that. <laughs> just, it's, it's the small things, right? It's a little Yeah, thing. yeah that make a big difference. And yeah. I think to, to kind of finish on then, so there's, there's lots around, and you kind of touched on it there in terms of retailers and brands coexisting. How is that going to play out in the future? Because they need to kind of... Mm. at times compete and at times live in harmony depending on where they're situated well that's a great question i mean and the ultimate point of arrival is a one plus one equals three right where you've got wholesale and retail brands i'm very dubious that there's many brands you know we could probably name a few a nike or canada goose that can make it on their own they can make it uh and be a big you know it can actually move the business forward because it is not always the case and there's a great study by Simeon Siegel from uh, BMO in New York about, listen, DTC versus wholesale. I mean, it obviously must be, you must must make more money if you're going DTC around those 
nasty middlemen. Well, it's just not the case. I mean, it used to be the case maybe 10 years ago where you could invest in platforms like Facebook and social media and reach customers at an economic rate. Those days are gone. Those days are long gone. And you need, you know, retail retailers in the ecosystem or many see the need for retailers in the ecosystem. At the same time, DTC retailer, when they work together, it's a beautiful thing. I've talked to lots of CEOs and we all talk, often talk about this, you know, how this one plus one equals three, right? What is your uh, assortment online that you're selling direct to customer? And how is that different from your wholesale partners? And how does it work together? And maybe it's exclusive items or maybe it's distribution items that, you know, you haven't got distribution for. So there's there's work that can happen. But I, I, I just think there's very, very few brands who can go around and, you know, some have called the useless middleman. Well, the reality also is that many wholesale brands, they're not good retailers. They're not set up for it. They don't have the people for it. They don't have the infrastructure. They don't have anything. And they kind of, well, this can't be hard. I'm going to start up a Shopify site and I'm going to sell direct to consumers. And it all collapses under their on top of their heads because, hey, listen, driving demand is hard. It's expensive. And you got to run that business like a retailer, which is very different than running a wholesale business. And I think sometimes that's a bit underappreciated. And I've been in those conversations where I'm like, listen, you guys don't even know what loss prevention is. Um, you know, you're a long way from, it takes a lot of expertise, as you know, to do either be a, whole, yeah. a great wholesaler or a great brand that sells direct. It's a whole different world, great opportunity, but you just got to be careful. Yeah. And the, the economics are massively different as well in terms of volume and margin yeah. and yeah. then where you need to get to to break even. So, um, yeah. Be well, really you, and, and the thing with the economics, the unit economics, it's very evocative, right? So, wait a minute. I can take out the middleman, the retailer from this, and I'll have all this money. Uh, why wouldn't I do that? Well, the short answer is because you won't have all this money because you won't have demand. You've got to drive demand. And yeah. driving demand these days is hard. Like we all know how hard it is and it's hard and it's expensive and it's expensive to get any kind of advantage, whether it's a Google search or Facebook, you know, listen, these guys aren't, this is hard to get advantage from. It's expensive. There's a reason the retail partners have physical presence. We should talk about that. Why there's a renaissance in physical stores. Cause the retailers are thinking the same thing. Maybe a well-placed store in a busy mall in a great location with a fun concept is better than putting that last dollar into Facebook. Yeah. And it, and they can't forget, like you say, that you can't just take that cost and extract it and then bank right. it. There's a reason why you're riding on the back of that retailer for, right. for footfall brand awareness, like you say, all the marketing activities that come off the back of it. Yep. Be, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out in the new world, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic. I mean, retail growth numbers coming out from this side here. I, I was listening to the U.S. numbers put out by the NRF. They were they're talking about uh, you know six to eight percent growth in 2022. That's even taking into account inflation. They've got huge inflation numbers, eight uh, percent first you know highest inflation in 40 years, uh, and it even takes into account a couple of uh, points off from uh, the inflationary effects of the uh, of the Ukraine war. So you know there's still as one retailer described it to me, this 2022 is going to be more a supply problem than a demand problem. And that really summed it up for me is, is what we're looking at for 2022 and perhaps beyond. Yeah, no, I agree. The lots of retailers we working with, I think of, they had rollover stock that came in late for Christmas. Mm -hmm. So in the new year, so I think we're, we're well placed in the UK for Christmas decks and lights and trees this <laughs> yeah, coming year. <laughs> um, 
I think the same probably for garden furniture because again yeah. there was the whole thing in the Suez with the the containers. Mm-hmm. But I think the challenge is going to be what backfills that for next year because clearly there's lots going on in the world as we, as we record, which is is going to impact yeah. things we know about, things we don't know about. So yeah, I mean, so, listen, supply chain is is been is worse a month ago than it's ever been, and now it's just got worser to use bad English. <laughs> um, you know, it's got even more complicated now than it was before. And and no one I talked to uh, here in Canada, no executives thought it was going to get, the supply chain was going to get any better before mid-2022 at the most optimistic. And, and many joined me and thought it was most, even like this is just COVID issues because, you know, COVID hasn't gone away. I mean, if you look at China today, as we speak today here in, uh, in mid-March, they've got entire cities shut down from their zero tolerance policy and guess what those cities make products that we consume and get shipped so there's these disruptions continue yeah yeah figures are slowly creeping up here i think mm-hmm. the, the good news is we're well vaccinated and actually yeah. the less the, hospitalizations yeah the, the strip the strain is like a cold now rather than anything more serious but well um, we can we can hope i mean it, it continues to be a bit vexing right i mean some people it does even with triple vaxxed it does affect uh, fairly severely, government policies are all kind of all over the place uh, from a from how they're treating it, and you know we can just hope that um, you know all retailers I speak to expect another variant. Not that they're scientists, but the question becomes uh, how deadly is it, how spreadable is it, uh, does it evade our? So there's a lot of unknown. So how do you how on earth do you deal with all this? And and the the net conclusion is. We as an industry and as individual retailers have to build so much agility into what we do and all the things that we do because we just cannot produce a future. Like the war in the Ukraine was probably not on anybody's bingo card two months ago, and now it is a full-born war. You just can't predict these things. So you better have an agile organization in all that that means to just to deal. Yeah, I think the war in Ukraine was only on one person's bingo card. Yeah, yes. and we, we we all know that is. But let, let's not go down that avenue. Let's so not, let's not go down there, Michael. It's been a, an absolute pleasure to catch up. Uh, if people want to find out more about you, have a chat, uh, mm-hmm. watch the YouTube videos, listen to the podcast, where's the best place for them to find you? Well, the best place for all of that is on LinkedIn. So connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, I do have a website that needs uh, a significant amount of upgrading <laughs> at, at emmyleblanc.co. So I'm a bit of that cobbler whose uh, kids go shoeless, really, when it comes to my website. But uh, yeah, the best place is LinkedIn. And, and I've got a number of podcasts and fun stuff that I do there. And uh, uh, check with check in with me there. I love to uh, chat and meet people from around the world and, uh, and just talk about uh, the wonderful industry that is retail. Awesome. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And final question from me, what's the best bit of business advice you've ever been given? Uh, I would say uh, bold, be bold, because when it comes to regret, regret, the idea that you have no regrets is fundamentally flawed. You need to really absorb your regrets and learn from them. And often, not always, but the regrets that you have when you look back in your business life is a lack of boldness. Very few times does taking a risk not pay off. Maybe you learn from it. Maybe you're successful. Most people would be most regretful from risks not taken. Awesome. Love that. It's been an absolute pleasure to catch up, Michael. Really, really appreciate you coming on and we'll speak again soon. Thanks again, Simon.